Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Checkfront, the booking platform trusted by over 5,000 tour and activity operators around the world. You can start your own free 21-day trial over at Checkfront.com. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. And welcome to Tourpreneur, episode 101. We have a roundtable. I'm really excited to offer more roundtables here on the show. We're joined today by Lauren of Arigato Japan Food Tours. Welcome. Thank you. Our first guest from Japan on the show. Yay. I'm excited about it. Yeah, we're having a lot more international guests now. I need to keep an Excel sheet so I can see where everyone's from. Because I know one day I'm going to say, you're the first guest from Croatia or somewhere, and it's not going to be. So uh, I guess it's a good thing. Tomer from Tel Aviv Expert Tours. How are you? Shalom. Shalom. Uh, Everything's fine. Good to be here virtually. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. And Jeremiah Calvino of Blend Marketing, welcome. Thank you for having me. So we have Wisconsin, we have Vermont, we have Tel Aviv, and we have Tokyo, correct? Japan. Yes. So very international. And we're all here today to talk about a report that was released by TripAdvisor beyond COVID-19, the road to recovery. Let's go ladies first. I'm old school like that. Lauren, what were your, some of your takeaways from the report? I really enjoyed the the way they broke the report down was interesting. I had some questions about that that I hope we'll get to talk about later. The one thing I, I noted at the top of it is as I was reading through it, I could tell that it was from a few weeks ago. And actually, when I got to the end, I realized that the last polling data they pulled was from about April 27th. And so I felt like some of the data is already a little bit dated. We're seeing some different push and pull um, on some of the points that they were talking about. And so I guess in that way, I would love to see it continually updated. So they actually did pulls of data throughout March until the end of April on the survey. So I thought that was interesting. And then I thought that it was pretty particular to sort of OTA purchasers. So they said right in the front that they were polling their customers, obviously, right? And looking at the data and traffic on TripAdvisor and on Viator, I'm sure. And so I wonder if some of what they found would play itself out in like DMC, itinerary planning companies, more traditional agencies, luxury travel. I think some of the things we should be careful as we go through the report to realize that it's a really specific subset of travelers that they were talking to. And I would have loved to see a little bit more about age, demographics, things like that. So they polled a number of different countries, but I don't know much about who their data, who their people were. So I'm quite curious. Very good points. Toma and Jeremiah, feel free to jump in. I I should have said this at the start. I know we're all really polite people and we don't want to talk over each other, but through this medium... Because unfortunately, we're not in the pub together. Feel free to jump in if you hear something that you want to address. I wanted to jump in and ask Lauren whether she saw a correlation within the insights that were in the report and what she sees in in her business right now. So Japan was one of the countries polled. Uh, They use data from Japan. So I am definitely seeing correlation. And one interesting thing, I think I'm the only food tour operator in the group, right? Tomar, you're not doing food tours, right? Only if I bring a sandwich with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so they did a whole separate section for restaurants because they're TripAdvisor, right? So that makes sense for them. But what was interesting was the steps that they listed for restaurants, I feel like they should have included for tour operators and hotel operators, because that was some of the most insightful data about the road to recovery. And I think, especially for me as a food tour operator, a lot of the things that they mentioned about restaurants are definitely true for the guests that are going to come on my food tours, because we go to restaurants and bars. But I actually found that section to be one of the most practical for operators of any of the tourism businesses that they were talking about. And I wondered why they broke that out so specifically that it was like, this is advice for restaurateurs. And I felt like some of that advice would have been for anybody, but I did feel like it definitely represented what I was seeing so far. I think there's been some changes recently as destinations open up, but yeah, it has reflected where we were by the end of April for sure. So, so the thing with the report, I thought it was very insightful because, you know, it, it shows you uh, the breakdown of the phases that they think it's going to proceed through the toll level and then the emergence and then the, the domestic phases. And, and you can get a lot out of it, not, not just by reading the section that is for, for experienced operators. If you read it in full, you see a lot of insights for example, we know that travelers are looking for accommodations fitting an outdoor trip from the report. So that gives me uh, kind of an insight into how to optimize my tour for outdoor experience. So, for example, you said that you're visiting restaurants in your tours. So is this something that you changed? It's not something we're going to change, but we're working with restaurant partners that are taking all sorts of social distancing measures and we're trying to go. It's tough in, in Japan. Some of our restaurants are quite small. So we're going earlier when we may be the only customers, things like that. But I agree with you that I found some really good cross correlations. In fact, one of the things that was really fascinating is they said, I think it was like uh, 53% of their respondents said they were going to value quality, safety, and privacy over price. So they mm. weren't necessarily looking for discounts but they were looking for these other things to be measured. And then I tied that with the, they, they talked about hotels and they said, so hotels should offer really good value packages. And so as a tour operator, I think this would be a good opportunity to take that data, go talk to hotels, like some of your hotels in, in outdoor destinations or my hotels, even in cities and say, hey, guests are gonna be looking for high value packages. We should work together. You should include a food tour in your hotel package, because this is what people are looking for, more value for the money that they're going to spend. My issue with that, because there was also a report issued by Walks, and they had, I think, surveyed 3,000 customers. And you know the score for private tours was, was quite high. It was a higher percentage than I thought. And of course, we understand it. But then they didn't put a price next to it. So I, I think most people are going to say, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to book a private tour. Well, that's $400, please. Or oh, maybe we won't book the private tour. <laughs> and I think that's, that's my issue with this is that in order to profitably run a private tour, that, that amount has to go up. So, you know, especially right now, you know, spending power, nobody really knows how this is going to play out. I mean, here in Vermont, for instance, our unemployment went down a couple of points in the last week, which I was quite surprised to see. And we're all hoping that will happen as we get out of lockdown. But I'm still dubious whether there's going to be enough people to book private tours to make it worthwhile. One of the things that, that they mentioned in the report is that 40% say that they predict they'll be worse off financially in the next 12 months. So even if, and that, that's another number from the report, even if 68% are still are, are thinking about where to go next, 32% are watching videos about the destinations that they want to go to. It might be the case that they won't be able to do all the travel that they want to do. I had a different take on, I agreed with you about the private tour thing and our private tour fees are pretty significant. But one of the interesting things is we've been very resistant to some of these dire predictions that everyone will have to slash prices. Because as a food tour operator, we just can't because we have a very fixed bottom line cost beyond guide fees. We have to pay for food, right? But I think that we actually have room to offer what will feel like a pretty compelling private tour discount and still add on a surplus for private tours, but make it less than it was pre-COVID. So that way we can say, look, we understand this is what you're worried about. You want to travel only with your own family and friends. 
this was our previous price for private tours. But to support our community, we're going to, you know, cut the private tour fee in half or by 30%. And we can comfortably do that. We have more of a margin playing around with our private tour surplus fee than we do with our bottom line food cost. So I had an interesting uh, epiphany about that part. Do you find with food tours there, you know, I'm hearing right now even fear of just going into a restaurant. I know people who are like, there is no way I'm sitting in a restaurant. I will go outside if they have outdoor seating, but I'm not going into a restaurant. Are you seeing that at all with food tours? So we are not operating yet back in the fields, but we are getting ready to domestically. And my husband and I just celebrated our anniversary and we went out to a couple restaurants over the weekend. And I will say that capacity is lower than it was before. They're definitely not full, but more and more people are going out. And in Japan, hygiene and cleanliness, mask wearing, all of that is super high level, like super, super high level. 95% 95% of people are wearing masks, right? So interesting to hear because here in Israel, it's uh, the other way around. <laughs> exactly. And so I think we will, with the right marketing and documentation, videos, photos, we will be able to make people feel comfortable about that because of all of the other measures that are being taken. But we're also looking at doing, uh, and on most of our food tours, we have like one indoor sit-down spot and we have a lot of like standing takeaway street food things on the tour as well. So those will be easy, I think. Um, But we're going to test it out in the domestic market first and see how that goes here. And I think actually people are like one or the other. Like I hear what you're saying and I'm seeing that with a lot of my friends in the state, Shane. But then I'm also seeing video of like packed restaurants in, in different cities around the country. So, you know, the first people that are willing to get on a plane and go long haul to Japan maybe are not going to be so particular about being in a restaurant. And we're looking at a probably next year for that. I'm really not that optimistic that we're going to see a lot of long haul flights uh, to Japan until 2021. So Americans will not be coming anytime soon, though we are hoping to see the Australians and Kiwis come back sooner. Yeah. And I I ask this because I do wonder, I was talking to a tour company uh, last week and they were saying that they're running the tours, obviously small numbers, but they are having to serve the food outside. And that's causing a lot of extra work for the food tour guide because they have to go in, they have to shuttle food back and forth and drink. So that's kind of impacting on the time. But because the restaurants are so restricted in terms of capacity and also because people are worried that's how they're having to to cope with with the safety protocols, and I, and I wanted to bring that up because that was something that I think it was Kristen Dorset, the VP of Supply at Viator, was saying that have your safety protocols online. Uh, and John Peel, I think it was either this morning or yesterday, shared uh, a Jacksonville pedal pub website, and because someone was saying how you know what website is is really highlighting the safety protocols really well, and that was at pedalpub.com, and they had their safety protocols kind of at the top. Um, and this is something I feel, and, and Jeremiah, maybe you can chip in here with your your marketing wisdom. That you know, do you think TripAdvisor, first of all, are they right to make that claim that we are going to have to address safety protocols digitally? You know, I think that what we're seeing is a big split. Some people care a lot, and some people don't care at all, right? And and of course, there's some people in the middle. So one of the things that we're recommending people do is instead of integrating your COVID-related health sanitation policies into all of the different parts of your website, use these banners, right? Like when you go to every website and they have read our policies. Fair Harbor, I think some other booking engines too have actually created buttons, you know, when you're sort of inside the booking flow where you can click on health and safety. So I've gone to some tour company websites and you'd think it was the CDC. It's like, wait, is this, am I going to have fun? You know, <laughs> it's just covered with things about sanitation and masks and everything. So it, it, you know, part of the thing is you want to, of course, keep your, your marketing focused on your experience and what people are going to enjoy while they're on your tour. The other thing, too, is just from a practical standpoint, a lot of times this information is changing week by week, right? Yes. And so having to go into your website and find all the different places and all the different tour pages where you have those policies or information is challenging. So, you know, having that kind of COVID bar at the top of your site or whatever, 
learn more about our policies or whatever, the, the Pedal Club site that you mentioned, I think does a pretty good job of that. Google is actually offering a free implementation of, of that bar through Google Optimize, which is, is really slick. One of the things that's cool about the, the solution from Google is they allow you to personalize it by geography. So if you want to show a different message to people who are international versus domestic or things like that, you can, you can do that easily. But basically, you know, put all your policies there, keep them up to date so that you know, people don't get upset when you say one thing, but then they run into something else. And then, you know, the, the people who are mindful can, can read it and, and get all that detail. The people who don't care can ignore it. One of the OTAs that we are now listing with, because they are finally making it over to Japan, is Head Out, which has already been big in the U.S., right? And they just sent us another document about the things that we had to say if we were doing them or not. And the people that pass a certain amount of safety protocols are going to have a badge on their tours on their OTA. So I that got me thinking about sort of certifications and and badges being a way to, you know, just like we did when people started using their credit cards online, you got that little trust and verify checkbox for credit card safety. And so I wonder if there'll be something like that for these kind of protocols. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've had this discussion on the show before. I'm still a little dubious as to how much teeth some of these certifications will have. And in fact, Pedal Pub that John was talking about, you know, it says at the top, we're proud to receive our Sansi Shield certification. Now, I know what that is because we are all in the industry, we're in the bubble. But if I'm the public, am I necessarily going to know what that is? And is it going to reassure me as opposed to, I don't know, say local government approved or, or something which I'm going to trust in? And I also wonder. You know, when I go to a restaurant, maybe I'm naive, but I'm assuming that it's clean, then they meet all the hygiene standards, et cetera. And, and I do wonder if seeing all these safety protocols, is it going to make me think twice? And we haven't had this yet because this magic thing of podcasting means that this episode will go out in two weeks. But I'm really interested at the Arrival Virtual Summit Day yeah. to listen to the Florida Aquarium because my worry is more, you know, Tom, you're outdoors People aren't going to be as worried. But if I was running a museum or some kind of attraction where people are going to come in, I think I, I, I would have much more concerns about safety protocols there than anything that's outdoors. So I can say that I'm back on the field. I have, uh, I, I think, three tours scheduled for this week, which is uh, three times more than uh, yeah. I had the past three months, which is amazing. But it does show one of the things that the, that was mentioned in the report, which is the resilience of traveling people really want to travel so it's it's not going anywhere it's uh, reshaping and we need to reshape with it and one of the things that i think about the badges and the uh, certifications is that well as jeremiah said the, there are people who, are, who care a lot about it and there are people who don't care at all uh, but for the people who do care I would go through all of the processes that I need to just to be on the safe side. So, uh, for example, in the report, it is mentioned that 86%, that's almost 9 out of 10 people, uh, said that they would look for cleanliness as the most important thing in selecting accommodation. So if it's true for accommodation, it might be true for experiences as well. So today I have this uh, tour. We are now allowed in Israel to have outdoor activities of up to 50 people. And I have uh, a large group today of a few dozens of people. And, and I'm going to make sure that I bring everything that I need to bring, uh, gloves, masks, so everybody will have the things that they need to be with in order for the person who is most fearful for their safety, to feel safe. That's the way I do it. So on the tours you've led already, what has the, the discussions been like with, with your guests? So firstly, because it's Israel, and I think we are very used to bouncing back from catastrophes. Yep. So people are very relaxed. Actually, we are now seeing an increase in the number of cases some stipulate that it is a second wave that we are now seeing in Israel. I hope it's not, but people are uh, are kind of 
going back to normal, pubs are full, restaurants are full, people are uh, calling me up to schedule tours. It's not as it used to be. Summer months are mostly kind of busy months. So I'm not saying all the busyness that I used to see, but but it seems to be coming back to normal. Hopefully we're not entering this second wave thing, which will <laughs> be uh, uh, very bad for the business. This is another thing that was mentioned in the report. Maybe people will still practice social distancing even when they are no longer mandated. And from my point of view, people relapse very quickly, maybe even too quickly. Uh, Once restrictions are eased, people feel very comfortable taking off their masks and and returning to, to business as usual. And the people on your tours, are they from Tel Aviv or from further afield in Israel? So Israel is quite a small country. So even like uh, a more distant city would be like an hour drive. So I have tours coming in from all over the country. But I would say mostly from the Tel Aviv metropolitan area, like within a 30 minutes drive. I, I wanted to jump in on just one thing that you like touched on that you, I think earlier you were talking about the percentage they gave uh, about resiliency, they were saying like 53% of people say they're already taking this time to research and plan their next trip, no matter when it is, whether it's this year or next year, they're taking a lot more time. And I, I had two thoughts about that. One is that, and I'm, I'm curious what Jeremiah thinks about this. To me, that sort of, you know, bolsters my own hypothesis that this is a really good time to have more helpful content offer things like travel consulting, like longer tail travel planning and information because people are in this like longer research phase. And and I thought that was quite interesting. And then I also wondered if this will change the paradigm for OTAs, because for us anyway, our OTA traffic comes within about 30 to 60 days of the tour time in pre-COVID days. But I wonder now if this is going to look more like our agency and, and other guests that are more like four to six months out, are we going to start seeing even OTA bookings um, much more distant rather than these like push for last minute bookings? I was really curious what you thought about that as well, Jeremiah, about the content side and and maybe about how far out in advance you think people are going to be booking and planning. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think that there's a lot of people window shopping right now. That's very clear. People are at home. They're stuck at home. I know I found myself, you know, just dreaming, right? Wanderlust. You can't go somewhere. So now you want to go. And, you know, one of, there's a couple of things that are, I think, really valuable there. One is, do you have a way of capturing people's, you know, information some way, right? Whether it's like download something and get, get their email address, get them subscribed to a newsletter or something like that. The other thing is remarketing. You know, when you put these pixels on your website from Google Ads or from Facebook, they give you six months to 12 months. I think some of the ad platforms even give you up to 18 months that you can retarget to people who visited your website, which is really cool, right? Because, I mean, even in good times, 95% of the people who visit your website don't book. Now that might be even a higher percentage. And so the ability with remarketing, you know, if you're in an area, for instance, that's closed and you have no international travel, you can be putting people on those remarketing lists anonymously. Everybody who's coming to your website is getting tagged. You don't have to spend any money. But at the point in time, you know, maybe it's in the fall or the winter or whatever, where you're like, oh, hey, this market is opening back up. I want to reach out to those people you can start pushing through ads into their Instagram feeds and things like that and recapture that attention and kind of bring people back. Uh, So I I do think that, you know, content marketing, you know, I've been seeing people too with advertising. I mean, I just, I just Googled tours in Italy and go ahead tours is running an ad that says 2021 and 2022 itineraries available, right? And then, and I think that this is really key when you talk about those booking periods, you click on that ad and at the very top of the page, there's a banner that says, you want to travel, we've got you covered. 
extended risk-free booking period, book today, and you know you can change your mind and receive a full refund of your deposit through September 1st. So actually taking money from people, but creating that level of confidence that, hey, if things change in your plans, you've got a couple of months, you, you know, you can get a full refund. So I think, you know, really with the booking windows, what we're seeing is some people who are concerned about refunds waiting until the very last second to make the booking because they don't know what's going to happen. But other times, I think when a company has the, you know, fiscal, I mean, some people are worried. I know I'm worried like about cruise lines. Maybe I shouldn't be, but they say refunds, but I'm like, are they going to be in business, you know? So you have to kind of play, I think, both sides of that. Expect the last-minute bookings, but also try to create flexible, extended, risk-free booking periods to, to get those lockers. This was also mentioned in the report that about 76% of respondents said that, that flexible cancellation policy is a must. So many of us have been caught out. I mean, I've mentioned several times on the show, you know, my trip to Berlin, I lost nine nights hotel. They would not refund me whatsoever, even though all the conferences were canceled. And now I'm like, okay, that's on me. I did book a non-refundable fee because it was cheaper. Now, like, I don't know if I'll ever book a non-refundable again. And I didn't even used to think about that before because I knew I was going. It's like, yeah, I'll get the cheaper one. Now I'm like, well, hang on a second here if something happens. So I think that flexibility is key. And I know that was a big part of the report. Are you going to change your cancellation policies, Lauren? So we've always been pretty good consumer advocates. We only have no refunds within 72 hours of the walking food tour. And it's like 50% five days out and like a full refund, anything more than that. And I think we will even be a little bit more flexible except in certain circumstances where like for Japan, sometimes when you cancel a restaurant booking, you have to pay those fees anyway. But our guests have been quite understanding when you say like, we can refund everything unless it's a non-refundable tour. We have a few ones, like we have a high-end cocktail tour where one of the places is just not refundable. But generally speaking, you know, this hit us really hard. I hate to say it, but harder than a lot of other places, I think, because Japan's peak season is March and April uh, for the year, right? So we do a third of our business in March, April, and May. So the coronavirus could not have hit at a worse time. So now there's some restrictions opening up and people are going to travel in the summer, but the summer in Japan is miserably hot. So for like, even for domestic travel, people maybe want to go to the mountains or the ocean, um, but they're not that hungry. They're not doing food tours and stuff like that. So for us, we're, we're refocusing on the fall. But we had to give, we gave, basically, we gave everybody who was affected by the coronavirus a refund. Even the last minute things that were coming in as it was crashing around us, we just felt like we want to be here when we come out and we want to be able to say that we did that. And that's the only thing that kind of pisses me off is that the people that like stiffed you on nine nights hotel rate, no one's going to necessarily remember them after this as not being so good about refunds. So we're going to try to do some PR about how we handled this. When we post those flexible refund policies in the future, we're going to make sure that we say we were always like this and we took care of our people when this happened. And that's how we're going to move forward in the business. And I was really happy to see people like Get Your Guide and folks like that be very proactive, both for their consumers and their suppliers which I thought was great. And I have a much higher opinion of them post-coronavirus than I did pre for that reason. Although the other side of that, of course, was with Booking.com. So Booking.com refunded everybody, but they didn't. The, the argument there was the hotels had no say in it. Yep. And that then on the other side was a lot of angry hotels. They said, well, it's our business. You know, We want to be the ones to make that decision. So it's very tricky for the OTAs. Well, what Get Your Guide did, which is why I mentioned them, is they said, we feel an obligation to refund all of our customers. But if this is outside your refund window that you agreed with with us, you will still get paid. So yeah. they they really put their reputation on the line. And like I said, for me as a supplier, it's not something I'm going to forget any time in the near future. 
take a day off from answering emails, telling your team what to get ready, or manually entering info across sales channels. Actually, take many, because Checkfront will help manage your bookings. Guests book and pay however they want. Your team has the tools they need to operate smoothly, and your calendar always stays up to date. Now, what will you do with all that extra time? Checkfront. One booking platform, limitless possibilities. Find out more at Checkfront.com. Tomer, how about your cancellation policies? Have you kept them the same or have you changed them to adapt? So for me, being kind of uh, independent in the field, I, I just a little bit of background. I lead tours in Tel Aviv uh, since 2008. I started uh, out of fascination with my family history because my ancestors participated in the establishment of Tel Aviv. They didn't leave me any real estate, so I, <laughs> I gave tours instead, which is also amazing. And I've been doing it independently since 2008. So I, I would say I'm a small company in that sense. So being small when a catastrophe hits is uh, preferable because the fall is, is smaller than for the big guys. So, so I have to say I, I have a lot of admiration for you, Lauren. Well, we're not that big either, but yeah, I hear you. Yep. <laughs> so, so my cancellation policy has always been very flexible. I refunded everybody that wanted the refund. And, and, but, but the thing that I also tried and, and sometimes succeeded in is letting people know that they can reschedule for next year or they can give it away to someone else who is uh, here in Israel rather than from abroad. And that was a great way to pr- persuade people to uh, not ask for a refund, but for something that they can give away or maybe use themselves some other time. Yeah, we did that as well. We let people carry over and encourage them to do that. And I would say about 20% of our people that were booked are holding on to it. And some of them, we had a, a gentleman that was bringing his father for like a four day, really amazing itinerary. We were doing all this food stuff with them and he had already paid his deposit, which was significant. And he had paid half of it. And he said, you know, just keep it. We're coming next year. No matter what, you're going to see us. And we don't want you, we want you to be there when we come. And so we tried to retell and amplify some of those stories without names. And we found that that encouraged some of our DMC partners to try to encourage their people to do that as well. To like say, I think you need to say, you know, we want these tour operators that are, are providing you this service. We want them to be around in six months or a year. So if you can just postpone, you know, that's better for everybody. And, and a good number of people did, which was, which was great. It was really, really good. And another thing that is, uh, I think is different between me and you is that I was able to lower prices a little bit. So people are expecting Corona pricing this time. So, well, not with everybody, but for a small family that wanted to uh, come from a distant city to Tel Aviv, do a tour, they're not going to pay as much as an, as a high-tech company that is bringing a lot of people. So they deserve a discount. If this is something that will help them, um, thinking that they are also hit to some extent by this financial crisis, it's a way for me to to, to lean towards the customers. So that's something that, that I saw myself doing and I felt pretty pretty good about it as a win-win situation. Yeah, we're going to be doing that for domestic. My family lives in Hawaii. Some of my family lives in Hawaii and Hawaii is all, their whole economy is tourism, right? Like that's how Hawaii operates. And they've always had what they call a Kaima'aina discount. Kaima'aina is a local Hawaiian for a local resident. And so I, that's how I'm kind of looking at this. When we launch our domestic tours focused on local people, they have a much better understanding of some of the food. And we're going to be kind of increasing the value of sort of like backstage experience for them, but maybe less quantity of food so that I can give them a locals discount. And I think they're going to be very price sensitive about it because they know what everything costs here and and they're going to be much more critical anyway. So yeah, so we're going to do that for locals for sure. In Israel, we don't have uh, discounts for locals. We have higher prices for uh, people coming from abroad. <laughs> yeah. Tom, have you changed your marketing at all? In a way, yes. I, I made much more stress on the fact that I'm leading the most hygienic tours in Israel ever, <laughs> which I don't think really resonates with people because I think Israelis aren't Japanese. But as I said, for the 
uh, 1% of the people who are concerned about health measures, this is my way of doing everything that I can to satisfy the 100%. So from, from one out of 100 is going to be concerned about this, I'm, I'm going to, to try and answer every one of his fears. So in that sense, I, I changed a little bit of my marketing. Apart from that, it's also going kind of to a higher volume because I sense that this is a very competitive time to work the market because you don't have the same levels of demand as you used to have. We're only working with the with the local market, which is good for me because a lot of uh, my colleagues are usually working with or almost exclusively working with tourists from abroad. So I'm also with Israelis, so I have kind of a competitive advantage in that sense. So I, I invest a lot more time into marketing, either online or making phones and phone calls, but, but making sure that I have this competitive edge. And one more thing that I'm going to take away from this crisis, we saw in the report that people are going to be much more picky about the destinations that they're going to travel to. During the lockdown time, I created virtual tours in Tel Aviv. And this is something that I think, I'm not sure how it's going to play out in the near future, but I think it's going to help people make decisions about the destinations that they want to go to. So this is for the time that tourists aren't coming into Israel, and it's probably going to last for, we predict, uh, a few more months, maybe even half a year until there's going to be a research of tourism. So up until that point, I think that virtual tourism might be a good way of making people interested in visiting Israel and specifically Tel Aviv, maybe help them make decisions about who's the guy that they want to go on a tour with. And so that's the one thing that I'm taking. Yeah, we're actually all in on virtual tours. That's the first thing that we did. And we're really happy that we did it. And we're already making a commitment to keep those going after coronavirus, because I think there's a case to be made now for virtual tours being a really good part of the pre-trip planning process. I think you meet a local, you can ask your questions to a real live person. You can find out more about the places that you're going. You can have a little bit of like dream experience with the people you're going to travel with. And so I'm going to be pushing out a lot of personal and professional content saying like, I've been doing this myself in lockdown. I found the guides I'm going to use when I go to Europe next year. I've done a lot of travel planning based on virtual tours. And it's also opened up a huge number of doors for us with travel partners who will resell us. Uh, our lag time for travel partners, if they couldn't come on one of our physical tours, it kind of took them a long time to feel connected with us. But what we're doing now is people in the industry and travel partners and media can come on our virtual tours for free. And they are covering it and writing about it. And they are like signing up like crazy. Like they are adding all of our physical tours and our virtual tours to their platform. But more importantly, I feel like they're building a relationship with us. And I feel like that's the same with the guest. So we will do more of them now than we will in the future, but we will always reserve some guide time for virtual tours. We're committing right now to do them up until after the 2021 Olymp Olympics. But we just got a contract with a local tourism office from another city to make a virtual tour for them. And they're paying us to make it. They're actually, what they're going to pay me to make the virtual tour is going to cover all of the ones that I've done for free so far. So I think there's something here. Like we've talked about how VR is going to play out in tourism for like five years. And I never saw the connection. But I think this is actually something that may last after coronavirus. If if we can get the word out about these great connections that you make and how powerful it is, it's better than a guidebook and it's better than a YouTube video. You know, you have a real live person you can ask your questions to. And I think there might be something in that for the future. Well, I have to say, I hope uh, if I do one of your tours, I'm going to have to eat beforehand because having looked at your website this morning, Lauren, I got very hungry. I haven't even had breakfast yet and I'm starving. I'm like, wow, mouthwatering. Cool. That's the goal. I experienced a virtual tour in uh, Lisbon, in Portugal, and it was almost noon here in Israel. And the virtual guide uh, opened up a, a can of tuna and spoke about the lunch that she's going to have. Oh, I was dying at the other end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. 
Another thing that came out of the report was they wrote that shorter trips to destinations closer to home are a recurring theme, with nearly half of consumers saying they're more likely to take a road trip and two-thirds saying they are more comfortable taking a road trip for three to five days. So, Jeremiah, you advise a lot of tourpreneurs on marketing. Is this something that you're now seeing where a lot of tour operators are like, oh, I've never had to market locally uh, and I know we're going to have a special episode coming up where you're going to do some, almost like a live consult with Rob in DC. Is this something you're having a lot of queries from, from your customers and, and prospective customers? Yeah, for sure. So in the US, I mean, drive time is the name of the game right now. You know, domestic flights are still at a paltry percentage of, of what they were previously. And my sense is, even from people who are like not that concerned about the virus and who are going out to bars and stuff, they're still not interested in getting on a long-haul flight. You know, and part of that is, is health concerns, and part of it is just the, the, the rigmarole of, of traveling during this whole time. So drive-time markets, though, are exploding. We have a lot of clients who are running 50 to 100% higher than they were last year. I mean, just off the charts, right? And, and, you know, people are saying, well, my cruise got canceled, Disney's closed, I can't go to Maui, right? All these other destinations uh, shut down. And so it's like, you know, it's, it's converging into these different drive time markets. So I think, you know, how you capture that, and it depends a lot, of course, on where you're located. And I think that you're seeing a big shift to in rural versus city tours. You can look at the Google search trends and see fishing trips and hiking and camping and you know cabin rentals, rafting. A lot of these types of activities are exceeding what they were last year. But of course, food tours and brewery tours are still 70, 80% down year over year. And the urban, you know, we, we clients in New York City and you know San Francisco, and they're still down 90 to 100 percent. But people in you know, running rafting tours, for instance, are just slammed, you know, sold out, right? So some people aren't having to worry about it a lot. I think that there's an opportunity for some operators to try to pivot and say, okay, you know, are there more outdoor experiences? Are there more countryside? Or, you know, can we get out of the city a little bit or explore the parks or, you know, do other kinds of things? that they haven't done before. But yeah, it's marketing to your locals, marketing to the people within that drive time radius. Part of what's great is that Facebook and Instagram and these social platforms make that really easy to do. And if you already have a customer database, one of the things I really highly recommend is you can... You know, if you go into Fair Harbor, Solar Peak, or whatever, you could download your customer database. You can filter that by, you know, maybe just your state or your region or whatever. And you can take that customer list of all the people who've been on your tour over the past, you know, how many ever, two, three years. And Facebook and Google allow you to upload these lists into the ad platforms and you, re- you can remarket to your past customers. And there's a technology called lookalike audiences, where basically we'll find the people within, you know, so if you're in California and you want to find other people who who have the same behaviors, purchasing patterns, demographic kind of criteria, it's all AI driven. So you don't really have to do anything, but you just literally upload your existing customer list into the platform and Facebook will go find the, the people who, who look most like your, your past customers. And so we've found that to be a really effective, we're running a lot of lookalike campaigns right now that are getting between a 10 and a 20X return on spend. So, you know, nice. people are spending $100 and they're booking $2,000 in revenue, which uh, is, you know, phenomenal. The other thing that's really exciting about advertising right now is that, really all the digital ad platforms work on an auction basis. And so the fewer advertisers that are um, advertising, the lower those costs become. And so many advertisers, both in the travel sector, but just in retail and in other sectors have backed out 
right now. And so we're seeing costs for advertising significantly lower, a lot of times 50 to 70% lower advertising costs this year or at this point in time than, than last year. So the cost to reach these people is lower. And, and I think too, you know, if you time it right and you're kind of catching that wave of the pent up demand as your region reopens, there is kind of a, a surge of bookings that you can get from that. We're super excited about that here because I think that's why we got that prefectural contract is that finally, I think there's a compelling reason to not just go to Tokyo, Kyoto, and Osaka because even domestic travelers go to these very popular places, but people want to go out into Japan wine country or they want to go into a more rural area or go to a tea farm. And so we're looking at doing some one-day, two-day, and overnight things where we're getting off of the main track. And we're going to test those out with domestic, but I think they're going to have a good carryover when things reopen for international as well. And then on the shorter side, some of the markets that are looking at coming back here first are less far away than the US and Canada and the UK. So hopefully we'll get some travelers from Southeast Asia and you know Australia and New Zealand coming back to Japan within 2020. You, you mentioned the contract that you just got. Uh, I, there's also a tour operator here in Israel that kind of teamed up with the municipality, not here in Tel Aviv, in a different city. So this is, I think, also a good time to tap into that because there is some money in authorities that are trying to boost business. And this Well, is and not just that, but they had a budget that was allocated. And the way at least it works in Japan, but in a lot of governments, once the budget is allocated, it's allocated. They're not going to take it back from you, but you might not be able to spend it in the way that you originally thought you were going to. So maybe you had a budget to take five of your governmental municipal officers to a big travel trade show. That's not happening now. So you've got money sitting there. And if tour operators can get in front of those people and say, hey, look, we can do a virtual tour for you, or we can do a We can prepare a domestic tour where we're bringing people in. Another city that we're working with is just an hour and a half drive from Tokyo. And they were talking about doing a big inbound project with us, which of course got put on hold right now because there's no inbound travelers. But I said, look, why don't we do a prototype? Because you're only an hour and a half from Tokyo and we can start bringing people in in this like short drive time and see how that works, a short train ride. And so they're going to go ahead with the project. And I think that it's an opportunity that people maybe haven't realized, but there is this there is this window right now where people are trying to figure out they're still going to plan for next year and they still want to advertise their destination. So it's a good chance to try to work with them. Toma, as we wrap up here uh, for today's episode, how useful was the TripAdvisor report for you in terms of running your business there in Tel Aviv? Firstly, it was interesting to try and get some numbers on it. Just to uh, see the numbers is very illuminating. So once you see something like 86% say that cleanliness is very important for them, this really helped me out to figure out what I want to do. So I was happy to read everything and get all the insights that I wanted to, to get. The first insight was about what to change in the tours themselves, how to use the, the advised safety measures and publicize the protocols that I have for hygiene. And the second insight, set of insights is about putting more stress on private tours for small groups, which is something that I uh, normally have. I have a lot of private tours for small groups, but this is a time that it is beneficial for me to publicize that even further. So, so that was the most important thing for me to, to get the numbers and kind of try and do it in the field. Thomas, for those listening, what is your website address? It's tlvxp.com. Uh, TLV stands for Tel Aviv and XP for expert or experience or explore, whichever you'd like. So tlvxp.com, that's me, Tomer Schlusch. Brilliant. I will add that to the show notes as I will add all the uh, links from today. That's tourpreneur.com forward slash 101. Jeremiah, how useful was this report for you as a marketeer? Well, I'll piggyback off on what Lauren said. I think that this information is changing very rapidly. So it was really interesting. I think that you know one of the big takeaways for me was that that's that I think it was 59% of people saying that they want an off the beaten path destination. 
And, and I do think that that's going to have staying power. But yeah, I'm really interested to see on a region-by-region basis and month-by-month basis how these different takeaways evolve. But I think that you know, so far we're seeing this play out fairly closely to, to what they have here. Lauren? So I found both this call with all of you, this podcast with all of you, very instructive. But I actually was surprised. The numbers, I feel the same way Tomer does, that the numbers kind of gave me, you know, a solid place to stand. But I actually was quite interested in what I picked up um, from thinking about it from an accommodation standpoint and thinking about it from a restaurant standpoint. Uh, The way that they broke the report down just kind of naturally lent itself to me thinking about things in a different way and seeing what I could use for my own operation and who I could reach out to. I really hadn't had the idea before about this value-added package for hotels, but I now feel Mm -hmm. like hotels are going to be looking harder on how to add value for their customers. And I want to be a part of that. So that was a big, a big epiphany for me. And then just in general, um, feeling more confident that we're headed in the right direction on on what we're doing for the protocols. And I 100% agreed with Jeremiah. I think having the protocols is really important, but keeping them contained in one space and not spread out all over your website is probably going to be the way we go. And I kind of got that feeling from the report as well. So yeah, I got a lot from it. And and we're arigato japan.co.jp. And we do food tours and we also do virtual tours. And I'd love to invite the three of you to take one if you'd like. Just uh, let me know after the podcast and I'm happy to have you guys try one of our virtual tours. To echo uh, what you're saying about hotels, for instance, is I had an email the other day from someone who's like, on your, your daily brief, which is for the tours, activities, and industry, why are you talking about hotels? And I'm like, we have to watch the hotels like a hawk. Yep. We also have to watch airlines. Airlines for sure, yeah. What are hotels doing on their website? Because if you think about safety protocols, you know, the hotels have really got to go out their way to, yeah, you know, this is how we clean the rooms and the linen and everything else. We know what marketing are they doing, what promotions to get people into a destination. I think we have to study these other verticals really closely. Are hotels open in Japan? Yes. We never had a solid shutdown. It's illegal in our constitution. So they never fully closed, which was terrible for them because they had to, they stayed open, but they had no customers. Uh, but they're starting to see domestic and, and domestic business travel, especially, is coming back already. People from outside of the big cities are coming in for business now. But yeah, definitely. So here in Israel, we don't have a constitution. So we weren't of them. I think the only people booking into Vermont hotels right now are husbands who are getting kicked out after the lockdown. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, get out of here. Surprise, I'm not in there. <laughs> Jeremiah, what is your website? Blend, B-L-E-N-D, blend.travel. And thank you for joining. Just just two points before we finish. I didn't want to share this with you at the start, but Kristen Dorsett, who is the VP of Supply at, at Viator, she's a regular listener to the show, as are the teams at TripAdvisor. So I'm glad you were all really nice and courteous <laughs> about the report today because they listen in. So that, that's fun. And for, for listeners, if there's anything you've heard today that you disagree with or you've got other ideas, you know, do come and join us. We're all on our Facebook group at tourpreneur.com forward slash Facebook and you know, let our panelists know what you thought of their views and uh, you know, what's happening in your area. So Jeremiah, Toma and Lauren, thanks a million for coming on the show today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much, Shane. I really, really enjoyed it. And it was lovely meeting you, Tomar and, and Jeremiah. I hope to talk to you guys again soon. Thank you, guys. It was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.